sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the final in our four-part series on tech regulation and tech censorship. It's the bad boy, the only boy of nonpartisan political podcasting, and I would like to thank you for making YDHTY the voice of the independent voter and electoral reform movement. Now, in the past three episodes, we've learned that, one, legislating content moderation on the internet is near impossible thanks to the First Amendment. Number two, if any legislation were passed, it would only make the largest tech companies, that is, the ones everyone is complaining about, more powerful. And three, the threat of regulation is often used by Congress to get tech companies to promote or restrict speech they don't like, which gives a nice little end run around the Constitution. If you would like greater context, listen to the first three episodes. I will be here when you get back. Now, to cap off our series, I have Arjun Murthy from The Factual, a site and newsletter longtime listeners will be familiar with for its focus on helping readers understand the partisan bias and credibility of the news they consume. Now, Arjun did some polling on the subject earlier this year, and I caught up with him while he was in the UK with his family on vacation to discuss. Now, our conversation starts by revealing a predictable 50-50 split on the subject of tech regulation, but veers off into the real problem driving this conversation. I'll give you a hint. It's not a speech problem. It's a customer service one. We also get a cameo from the British government you are sure to enjoy. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So just to start, I think it's worth noting where we are respectively in time and space because it's seven in the morning my time uh you are in the uk right now and it is around just a little after 12 your time and you landed when five days ago now and you traveled with your your, with your children too right yes yes whole family so i've got to ask because i didn't dare travel with my family until my youngest was four and how old are your kids now five and nine okay so you're in a good spot yeah we've traveled with them earlier though like we're we're a bit stupid we took my son to jordan when he was two we've taken my daughter to mexico when she was three um so yeah i feel like the kids just need to suck it up we're traveling we're gonna see places get on the horse (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, the kids need to suck it up. I think the issue is that, like, as the kids are sucking it up, the parents sometimes suck it up, too. Yes. <laughs> and I, I I didn't dare. I mean, we didn't dare jump on a jump on a plane with any of them. Well, you also have way more kids. So yours is a different... We have a man-to-man defense situation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're running the zone defense here, yeah. Um, second thing I think we ought to note is that because you're in the U.K., you're under quarantine now for two weeks. Is that right? Or how long is the Ten quarantine days. period there? Ten days. Ten days. Okay. And you're there for how long? 28 days. Perfect. Perfect. So so then at any point in time during this recording, you may get a call from the British government making sure that you're in the house. That's exactly it. <laughs> and if you don't answer, 
they're going to show up. Is that correct? And check yeah, I, I think it's not, it's not a definitive they show up if you miss one call. But if you miss yeah. enough calls, they definitely show up. So I've heard it can be as short as two or three calls you miss and they show up. It can be as much as five, um, but they will show up. And is it like the police show up or is it some like, I think it's like NHS a, official? Yeah, I think it's NHS, like a test and trace kind of team. So I don't think they're going to cuff you, but they definitely find you if they find you're not in the house. Got it. Got it. Well, I may be peer pressuring you <laughs> not to answer that call so we can see what happens live. Um, all right, man. Well, with that out of the way, with the understanding that you've got kids who are just adjusting to the new time. And you have the heavy hand of the crown uh, <laughs> watching you. <laughs> We're going to jump into the subject matter, which is, you know, as I mentioned, we've been talking about tech censorship and tech regulation this month. And you've done some polling around the issue. Just to level set, can you first, for the listeners who haven't, heard of heard of the factual yet or haven't listened to the past episodes we've done together can you talk about what the factual is sure absolutely so the factual uh is a community of people that likes to uh read and consume credible news from across political spectrum so we're a news service that identifies and curates the most informative and the least opinionated stories across the political spectrum uh, it's grouped into trending topics, and then we now have started to discuss those topics uh, in addition to being informed about it via a daily newsletter. It's also worth noting that your audience really breaks down evenly across party lines. Yeah, that's right. So our audience is anonymous, uh, which we thought was really important because when we engage in discussions about the news, people are very sensitive about um, talking about it in a way that might have retributions in their real life. Uh, in their professional life or their personal life. So our audience is anonymous, but we do know some things about them uh, based on sampling as well as some of the data that they self-identify in, in polls. And um, because we recruit about 20% of our audience from Facebook, Facebook gives us a certain amount of data on what kinds of publications people might like. And so we can tell that we're actually pretty evenly split, uh, liberals and conservatives. Perhaps more interestingly, we are spread across all 50 states uh, and roughly the proportion of the population of the U.S. So it's a really nice cross-section of the country from a geographic standpoint, also from a socioeconomic standpoint. Um, we've got literally uh, every profession you can think of is in our uh, readership because they self-identify sometimes with questions. We've got pastors, we've got ex-convicts, we've got CEOs, we've got unemployed folks. I mean, it is the whole range you can think of. Um, and so it's, you know, I'd like to think it's a very nice cross-section of what the United States might be thinking about an issue. And the question specifically are, should tech companies be able to deplatform politicians? And should, the gov should government be able to pressure tech companies to take down disinformation around COVID-19? And I'm interested in, in, in diving into both of those. I guess the first question I have for you, and you can break it down into both questions if it was different, but mm -hmm. you know, what were some of the like overarching themes in terms of responses to those questions? Yeah, so you know, first at a high level, 
both the polls came out uh, almost surprisingly split decision. Let's take the first question, you know, should social media uh, companies be banned from deplatforming politicians? And our choices in our polls are usually very simple, yes, no, maybe, or yes, no, unsure. In this case, it was no about 51%, so they should not deplatform politicians. And then yes, 43%, with about 6% unsure. And it's a decent sample size, about 446 votes. And uh, we then allow people to leave an optional comment. We had 97 comments in this case. And by the way, the context for this, you guys might remember, uh, this is back about a month ago, uh, or actually a couple months ago, Florida signed a law that banned social media platforms from deplatforming politicians. Now, whether or not that law is legal, I think it remains to be seen because, of course, uh, social media companies are private companies and theoretically could do whatever they wanted uh, on their platforms. But again, there's a lot of back and forth around that. So that was the context. That was the poll result. And broadly speaking, I think the themes that you would see, the first is some people saying, look, this is uh, private corporations. Just what I said, private corporations, should, they should be able to do whatever they want to. It's their product. Uh, this isn't a public service or a public utility. Uh, so that was definitely one uh, theme that we saw. And then the second is uh, something saying, look, they're kind of, you know, they've been shielded by this law called Section 230, which uh, probably many of your readers know. It basically absolves uh, social media companies from any liability based on content that their users create. So it's what allows platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and all these things to say, yeah, if someone puts something on there that is incorrect, you can't hold us, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, et cetera, liable because we didn't create it. Our users did, and we can't or don't want to police all of it. But what uh, another theme that emerges is people saying, is that really, is it fair for you to be hiding behind Section 230? Because you are making some efforts to clean up content, and if you go around blocking some users but not others, then you're not really just a generic platform where people can publish and Section 230 is to apply, you're actually closer to a publisher. You're like any other news org. And then guess what? You should also be subject to the liability and slander laws that uh, govern printed publications and, and media organizations from printing something that's factually incorrect. So those are a couple of the big themes that we saw. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Section 230 too, because that's come up. And I think the big question is like, is that a good thing? You know, is it a good thing that these companies have just no liability when it comes to, to what's put on their platforms? And, and I think to your point, are they behaving as someone who has no control over what's said or what isn't said? Were there any commonalities in terms of, of partisanship in how they answered? So we don't uh, slice our poll data by partisan affiliation uh, in general, in part because we don't have that data. Like I said, it's an anonymous poll. We try not to get too much information on folks. But also because one of the things that we've seen is the partisanship isn't as deep and consistent as one might think. So, you know, on a tangent, we'll ask a question like, uh, you know, should there be a license to open carry a gun? And you would think sometimes that Republicans and Democrats would think very differently on that. But in our polls, it was like 80-something percent said, yeah, you should have a license, uh, which would seem like, well, that's very left-leaning. And then we'll ask another question maybe around uh, transgender sports athletes and whether they should compete uh, 
uh, in women's sports? And then, you know, the answer is, uh, was predominantly no. And you'd say, well, that's a very Republican line of thinking. And so I use those examples to show that what we've seen with our user base is they don't consistently vote along party lines. They vote as they think is reasonable or right according to what, what they believe in. And so in this case, I couldn't tell you if it, it's a vote along party lines, but I think it's a close enough vote that it suggests to me um, that both sides actually might have a good argument uh, to make here. Yeah, and that's something too. Like One of the things I, I love about the, the, the content you put out and especially about your, the conversations you've had with your audience is that you find a lot of nuance and a lot of overlap between seemingly ideological opposed people. And, and I'm interested in, underst- in, in finding out what did they, what did they agree on the most? So were there, was there an area of, or, or areas where there was overarching consensus on these topics? Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that most people agree on is the, the original value proposition of social media has changed a lot in the last 15 or 20 years. So it used to be just a place where you'd share photos, you know, family photos and maybe connect with old friends and follow some interesting people. And now it seems to be in the eyes of most, uh, just a morass of misinformation, um, trolls, just bad content. So the general sentiment about social media, I think, is very negative. And that's true across party lines. It's not, for a lot of people, they really question if these are net beneficial organizations anymore. What do they feel the solutions are? Or were there common solutions that came out of that great? No, I think, you know, there also there's a fair, uh, there's sort of the two camps, as you will, as you expect. One camp is saying you should get rid of Section 230's protections for these uh, social media orgs because they're behaving more as publishers and, and they should be held accountable. And then another group is saying, no, don't do that. Like you start to tell them to police all this information. What they'll do is they'll just shut everything down because why take the risk? And that's basically censorship at some level. So the example that comes up, especially in the context of COVID-19, is this uh, lab leak theory. You know, did the virus that causes COVID-19 escape from a level four virus research facility in Wuhan, China? Uh, And initially, back in 2020, that idea was dismissed both in, in the news, but really more uh, on social media, was said, nah, that really doesn't hold any water. It doesn't feel like it's uh, it's a viable theory. It's a conspiracy theory. And uh, if you mentioned it on social media, there was a reasonable chance that you were going to have your post block or perhaps your account suspended. And now, a year and a half later, people are saying, well, yeah, it's possible. I mean, we still don't have any further information than we did last year to say it's true, but we can't dismiss it out of hand either. And so social media's uh, article, uh, organization saying, oh, well, you know, we're not going to shut it down if you mention this on your post. So the, the point being, what, what seems to be disinformation or false news one day in the future can turn out to actually be true. And if we leave it up to these organizations to decide what's true and what's false, they're generally going to err on the side of 
well, get rid of all of it if it's even mildly suspicious because we don't want to be liable and that'll shut down a lot of possible theories to explain the world around us. That was the most interesting comment I read on uh, in the comments that were made on, on those questions was what's disinformation today may be proven true tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and I think to your point, that lab leak theory uh, is, is still kind of up in the air. You know, the origins of, of, of COVID are still up in the air. You know, I did, uh, this is back in December, I did an episode on voter fraud. And I had someone who was trained in statistical analysis walk us through the process of determining whether this claim had any merit or not, just going through a scientific dissection of the issue. It was, not only was it taken off YouTube, but it was actually, my account was banned. And wow. I had to, yeah. And I had to go and appeal it. And and this was not like a pro, this was not, I was not in, in any way promoting the concept that the election was fraudulent. It was actually quite the opposite. But because of the way, you know, YouTube works, it's, you know, they just kind of saw voter fraud. And, and I think it raises a, you know, a much bigger question, which is, you know, once these companies get into the business of policing content, whose yardstick is it? That's right. Right? Because like, and even Facebook has encountered this globally, where messaging that might not be inflammatory in one country could lead to violence in another. You know, I think uh, it's interesting. Uh, It's a little bit of a tangent, but to me, what sticks out in that uh, in that uh, incident is the word business, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, my thesis or my hypothesis—not thesis—my my my suspicion is that when you have an environment that allows you to make money, the more incendiary and extreme your message is, then you're going to get more of that content, and. So everything is sort of geared around it. So first of all, you were trying to do something thoughtful, which is do a really deep dive issue on this thing that's really vexing the country at this point, election election fraud or election security. Um, And of course, the sensors, the, the, the YouTube algorithms is trained to say, if this comes up, get rid of it, shut it down, because we know that most of the content on this topic is bad, bad, bad. And so it just sort of goes one fell swoop and gets rid of it. And I think if we did not have an environment where you could get ad dollars for this kind of crazy stuff, there just wouldn't be as much of it. I mean, ultimately, there's not that many people who believe in conspiracy theories that it could go mainstream. But when you make it a viable business, then you get a lot more of it. And you get a lot more of it, then you get all these sensors, and they're like, well, we've really got to police it. Policing it individually is very difficult because it's so much. So you know what? Wipe it all out. And if we lose one Dan Sally account for every 50, you know, crazy people that are talking about it, yeah, it's collateral damage. We'll, we'll accept it. I think that's how the calculus goes. It's very difficult. And there's, there's kind of two big things on that. The first one is, is the free speech argument. Because, you know, the, the analogy I use is, is the gun debate where there mm-hmm. are people on the gun control side who say when the second amendment was written guns were you know generally hand loaded and had you right. know and had one shot before they had to be loaded again they didn't have the destructive capacity 
they have today. Now, one could argue when the First Amendment was written, speech was person to person mm-hmm. or maybe at best was uh, a, a newspaper that spread within the ta- within the town it was printed in. And, and now you look at social media and and not only does it expand that town square, but you've also got this algorithm juicing the conversation. And so the real question in my mind, the real question is like, is that is that actual speech? Like, is that free speech as intended in the Constitution? Because in my mind, it's distorted. Yeah, I don't think I have a good opinion on that. I'm not uh, well versed in constitutional law or law specifically. It's harder for me to opine on that. Um, my the way that I think about it, maybe because I'm an entrepreneur, I think about it from the business lens. And, you know, at, at a very high level, I'm, I'm sort of an optimist. I think the majority of humanity uh, means well. They're trying to do the right thing. They're very busy with lives. They're just trying to pay the bills, get their kids fed, you know, make ends meet. And, you know, they fulfill basic functions. Most people are like that. There's a small group that is uh, maybe ill-intentioned. And for the most part in civilization, the good so outnumbers the bad that we're fine. But when we start to create systems that allow the bad to have an outsized influence, it starts to feel like, wait, there's a lot of those guys. And you start to have a very distorted view of the world around you. So I think that comes into what you're saying, the distortion of free speech. I think you're right that, of course, they couldn't have thought about that 300 years ago when they came to the Constitution, but that is very much what's happening, is we create this environment that gives these people on the fringes who don't speak for the vast majority of us that are just normal, sane people. We've got this extreme, whether it's the left or the right, and they get disproportionate share of voice because of these platforms. And that's really messing up our interpretation of the society that we live in. That, to me, is a really big problem. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. You nailed it. And this is actually, this leads up really well to my next question on it. As an entrepreneur, you know, one of the big, uh, one of the big things proponents of Section 230 say is that this regulation allows this, these businesses to exist, you know, so Facebook couldn't exist. Twitter couldn't exist, at least in its current form. And or, or or arguably would be less profitable, and maybe Mark Zuckerberg could only afford one Hawaiian island, which would be a shame. <laughs> but you know, I, what I what I wrestle with is is in 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 Europe they they have this concept, the precautionary principle, which is effectively you need to prove it's not harmful before we release it into the open market. And in the U.S., we do exactly the opposite, which is we say, for the most part. You know, we say release it, and if it proves harmful, we'll regulate it. At that point, um, as an entrepreneur, you know, when you look at something like Section Two Hundred and Thirty, that really creates an environment where companies like Facebook and Twitter can favor engagement over maybe thinking about what's good for society. What do you feel placing greater restrictions would do? Do you feel it would? stifle innovation or do you feel it might be a necessary intervention based on where we are today i mean in general i would say you want less regulation just because it it promotes more experimentation 
And uh, there's a reason that the United States still produces so much of the innovation that runs the biggest companies of the world. Uh, for all its flaws that the U.S. has, and, and, and boy, does it have quite a few, it's the R&D lab of the world. <laughs> it kind of is, you know, in a lot of respects. And I love that about it. I love building a company in the U.S. because of it. Uh, but yeah, we should still have the discussion. You know, what, what are the reasonable boundaries that should exist? And for me, I don't, I don't think Section 230 by itself is problematic. I actually think it's, it's a fine, it's a good drafting of a law that really enabled a lot of these companies to exist. My problem is more with the incentives that those companies have on how they make money. And when it becomes something that says, the more likes and hearts and tweets that you get, the better off this company does. And oh, by the way, the kind of stuff that gets the most likes and hearts and tweet is the most awful extremist content. That's the problem. I don't think the law itself is a problem. Like, if imagine if we didn't have 230, so many of these companies wouldn't exist in this way. And forget the companies. I think it overlooks a lot of the good things that social media has done, which these days people don't talk about. But it's allowed so many people to connect to communities that makes them feel more included in some way that they thought they were alone. And now, oh, my God, all around the world, there's people like me that think about this issue or it's allowed you to discover new passions and interests and follow it and develop those interests like social media does have some real pros and cons and and a very simple level it helps me keep in touch with my extended family around the world which i realize sounds very old-fashioned but just sharing pictures it's really nice i like it and so you know i think there's some good things for it and i'm glad those companies exist i just don't love the way they make money uh at times because it makes the worst of them come to to light yeah and to your point too i think it's very easy, given the way the human mind works, to focus on those negatives and not think about, you know, the baby pictures and the things you've discovered. So yeah, so I, I think you have a point. Do you do you see like do you see a way forward? Do you see a way that social media companies, either voluntarily or through regulation, can change that incentive structure to like keep the crazies out or at least not give them as, as big of a voice as they have. I think the social media companies and regulation regulators will duke it out for a while and it's going to be ugly and I don't know how it's going to play out. Um, you know, for me, I think the best change is always that which is driven by the consumer. When consumers vote a certain way, that's the most powerful. It's more powerful than regulators. Imagine if all of us decided, you know what? I'm not going to get my news on Facebook anymore. That's just nuts. That's a bad idea. And if we all en masse said that, you don't need any regulation. Facebook is gone. You know, it now reverts back to what it was supposed to be, which is share baby pictures and get back to what you were good at. But we as consumers have to make the decision on where we want to get our information and how we decide what information is true or not. There's this real balance that we have to strike. It's such a difficult balance, by the way. I'm not espousing that I have the answer, but there's a balance between uh, consumers being responsible for the information they consume and deciding what to believe, but also the companies and the systems that provide this information for, for giving them enough context to make that decision. So what I'm saying is one side of the equation is saying, you know what? 
It's all on the companies. You guys should, I don't want any crap in my feed. I don't want anything that's false in my feed. It's your fault. Another side's like, no, you're responsible for your own life. You should take complete charge. You should have all the information. You decide everything. It's not the company's problem. It's your problem. You should be an educated consumer. The answer is it's kind of in the middle. Think about like how we deal with credit card statements, right? You're on the hook for credit card bills. We also don't want credit card companies to mislead you into using their products in a way that gets you deep into debt. That's very hard for you to understand. So there's some sort of balance to strike. I think that balance can be struck. It's kind of what we're trying to do at The Factual, which is we're giving you a lot of context around all the news. So we have these ratings that tell you how credible or factual a story is likely to be based on all these transparent systems. It's a good way for you to filter it, but it doesn't eliminate anything. At the end, the information's still there. If you really want to read it, it's up to you. You can always choose not to believe our ratings. That's your call. But we will provide as much of the facts that we can so that you, the consumer, is well poised to make the right decision. Do you know why we can't have nice things in America? Or better put, why we can't have open and civil debate in a democracy that requires it? It's because polarization is a feature, not a bug, in American politics. We are one of the few democracies that uses an electoral system called first past the post, where all I need to do to win is win one more vote than second place, as opposed to better functioning democracies that have a higher threshold of over 50% to win office. What it means is in America, I am better off appealing to a smaller group of hardened partisans by demonizing the other side than I am at finding consensus. And it's the reason we only have two parties in this country. It's the reason the majority of Americans choose not to affiliate with either of them. And it's the reason you listen to YDHTY. And we need to change this if we're going to continue as a functioning democracy. And there are two ways you can help. First, if you like what you hear, and I'm guessing you do, share YDHTY with just one friend. This podcast grows by word of mouth, and we need more people like you in the conversation. Second, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. Rank choice voting is by far the easiest and most practical way to bring America to a consensus-driven system of elections, and Rank the Vote is dedicated to getting it implemented in every state. I hope you'll join me in the fight. And now... Back to the episode. I, I think the the most interesting thing I've found as I've learned more about your audience and discovered what they're talking about is that um, there's there is a definite market for good for good news. There's a definite market for folks who who want to really cut through the fog and and in a lot of ways too to kind of build on your point about having a more educated consumer. You know, in a lot of ways, I think social media is is a reflection of our own weaknesses and our own neuroses and our own fears. And the level of vitriol is not created by social media. It's amplified by it. You know, those right. feelings, those suspicions are all there. And it's just if social media allows this feedback loop where you can justify those preconceptions and become even more hardened in your, in your position. Um, and what I, what I've found really interesting about some of the areas where your audience has reached agreement is that there's, there's a, there's 
it's revealed the softer side of people. You know, yeah. it's revealed it's revealed the side of people who aren't just like reacting to that tweet, reacting to that post. I'll give you a stat because it backs up what you said, and it's a very good, simple stat, which is the fraction of people on Twitter in the United States, I think I want to say it's about 20%. And the fraction that's actually active on Twitter is like, I don't know, a third of that. And the fraction that gets their news on Twitter that's active is like, you know, another third. It turns out that the really, really active people on Twitter are a tiny, tiny slice of the population, probably numbering one or 2%. It's so damn tiny. When did they become the definitive voice of the country? Like who... Who in their right mind would think those guys are speaking what we all think? And of course, you stand back, you're like, it's not even close. It makes no, it's, it's almost the opposite. Whatever is trending on Twitter is probably not what America thinks <laughs> is how I want, you know, and, and once you make that connection, you're like, oh my goodness, this is really distorting the world around me. Just get off social media, go talk to normal human beings across the political spectrum. You'll find most are not that different from you. You guys all share basically the same wants and desires. Maybe you have slightly different philosophies about how to get out there. Probably don't hate each other. Probably can live well together. Probably can have a beer together. I mean, it's it's so crazy. We're not that different. That that's I mean, that's your that's your thing. You don't have to yell. That's right? you in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I heard another stat. I'll, I'll throw your way, which is that the majority of disinformation around COVID was traced back to twelve people. That's right. That's right. right? Yeah. And by the way, who are all making, I think all but nearly all make a ton of money from it. And that's what bugs me about this whole thing is we've created a business model around bad information. That's what's feeding this nonsense is you made it actually profitable to publish nonsense. And we've got to peel away from that. That's where I think the solution ultimately, I, you know, I, I would hope that the factual, we can play a meaningful role in it. But for example, in our community, simple things like when we, we just introduced our version of the like button, it's called the respect button. And uh, it, it just went live yesterday. We're a bit What's quiet the icon? Because... Is it like a fist bump or is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a little arrow. Uh, it says the okay. word respect. But, you know, there are a couple of things we do. For example, uh, when you respect something, you don't see how many people have respected it. There's no 13, 26, 3,400, nothing. It's just thanks. You respect it. That's it. And the recipient, the person who wrote the post, they'll see it, but no one else will. And so we take out a little bit of popularity from the equation. Mm. And then even how we choose to sort comments, we sort comments based on tone, length, and how much the, the writer who, of the comment, how often they read, so how consistent a reader they are. Maybe they know something about this topic. We don't care about the number of votes it's got or all those kinds of things. So again, we're getting away from popularity and we're getting more to, is this comment from someone who's thoughtful? Have they written something that has value? And if so, let's showcase that. It may not be right, but at least it seems like they're doing a good job at trying to share some useful information. Maybe those are the kinds of things that these platforms can do to get away from the ridiculous popularity contest that distorts our view and promotes fringe ideas as being the mainstream idea. Yeah, and in a lot of ways too, you know, I, I think the folks who created like V1 of social media didn't quite know what they were going to end up doing. Yeah. You know, I think I, I remember hearing the person who invented the like button say, you know, we originally did it to spread positivity. Yeah. And he said, and I feel so terrible 
that this has led to teenagers being depressed and family members tearing each other apart. Uh, you know, he, he was really, he really lamented it in a lot of ways. You know, if you look back to like, like just to give a historical analogy, I'm sure like Ray Kroc, when he started spreading McDonald's around the country, didn't <laughs> think like he was going to have like a, a, a millions of obese children in his way, yeah. you know, but it just happened. Yeah. I think, and that's part of what being a good steward of a business is. Look, at the end, a good business solves for the benefit of its customers, its consumers. It wants, generally, a, a good entrepreneur generally wants their customers and consumers to be better off because of their product. And so you start out with a product and it works well, but over time, if you see, you know, deleterious effects, yeah, change it. I mean, it's not like Facebook doesn't have the money to change whatever systems are misguiding people. They absolutely can. It's just a question of willpower and if they want to. And I don't hold them. I, I'm the same as I, I believe what you said, Dan. When all these guys started out, I don't think they had a clue that their work could have such negative impacts. And I, I wouldn't have either. So I don't blame them for the point of getting here. But now that we're here and you know what these systems can do, really take a good hard look at how do I change my products so that it stops uh, promoting these harmful ideas in a way. And it's tough. It's not an easy answer. It's so hard. You're balancing free speech, you're balancing, et cetera, balancing your business, blah, blah, blah. But I do think they can do better. Yeah. And I just, I, I also wonder, you know, we like to throw our hate at, you know, Zuckerberg or, or Jack Dorsey or what have you. But the, the other thing, of course, is that, you know, behind both of them are a, a bunch of investors who want their way. And do you feel that that, that push might be influencing the direction of these companies? L yeah, less so in the case of Facebook. And it might also be true for Twitter because uh, you might know that Facebook has a dual class uh, shareholder structure which gives uh, Mark Zuckerberg outsized voting authority, even as the second class of shares uh, is more distributed and diluted, so more investors are there. But it basically says Zuckerberg has final say on most things and carries so much voting power between him and Sheryl Sandberg and some of the other folks um, that pretty much vote along his way anyways at the board. Yeah, he could make whatever changes he wanted to without having to worry too much about investors. Of course, there could be negative impacts on the business model, and that could have all kinds of ramifications. I, like I said, it's not easy, but he, he's in an unusual position where he doesn't have to be like, well, I don't really have the signing authority, and I would need all these people on the board to do it. I don't think that's correct because of that dual class share structure, and that's true for a lot of uh, tech companies. I think it might be true for Twitter, but I honestly don't remember. Interesting interesting because my thinking was you know again any tech company could say yes we could make these changes but our ultimate fiduciary duty is to the shareholder and it sounds like in this case that argument isn't even present and arguably i would think that argument's bogus as well even if he didn't have signing authority because again if you're solving for the long-term health of your cons your customer your consumer mm -hmm. then that's what you should say to your investors say look if we let's take McDonald's as the example, we could say let's keep selling these burgers that are making our customers sicker and dying, 
And yeah, it'll be fine. It's like, well, what if your sales keep going down and your customers are turning away from you? Is this business going to be around in 15 years? Versus another CEO comes in and says, guys, I've got some bad news. What worked for us 40 years ago, it's just not working today. Consumers have changed. Tastes have changed. Demand has changed. We're going to change what we do. We might not even sell burgers in five years. Yeah. I don't know. It's just not who McDonald's is. We're, we're a restaurant company. We're not a burger company. And what I care about is satisfying my customers, giving them a healthy meal at a good price. And it's a good meal that you can get anywhere across the world. That's what we're about. It doesn't have to be burgers. It doesn't have to be meat. It doesn't have to be anything. It's what we choose to make it to satisfy our customers in a healthy way that keeps them coming back for decades. That's your mission. You stick to that. You're going to make the changes quicker. And yeah, there might be some short-term issues, but long-term, your customers will be around longer. So the argument I would put back to Zuck is, if you don't make this change, what if nobody comes to Facebook in 10 years? Because they're like, that is a cesspool of garbage. Well, that's a pretty crap outcome for your investors too. So maybe you should do this also just for them as well, which is fix this thing so that we all stop thinking of Facebook as just bad, 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 and get back to think of it as actually, there's some good stuff here. And yeah, there's some issues, but you know, there's some, there's some good controls around it. And I come really for the baby pictures and these groups and the other things that are very good for me. Yeah. Well, I'm dubbing the factual, the Chipotle of online news. <laughs> Without the uh, salmonella poisoning. <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Without the salad. I don't know what else we could call it. Qdoba. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it's it's such a good debate and discussion. Uh, I uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall and uh, on these you know, in the board meetings of some of these companies and hear like, how are they balancing all these competing objectives? But I do know, and Dan, you and I worked for uh, Brian Halligan at HubSpot. I never one day doubted where Brian's heart was. Not one day. I could have disagreed with him. I did disagree with him all the time on things. But I knew that he always thought 20, 30 years out for the benefit of HubSpot customers. Oh, Never, ever doubted that. 100%. Yeah, 100%. and so I've seen that now with him. And then I had another boss before who was also just as amazing. And that's what I want for the CEO. That's what every good CEO should be, long-term, customer-focused. You do that, you're mostly going to make good decisions. And I think to, to build on that, I, I think what sometimes happens is you have these you know very young people, kids really, you know, coming in, getting a lot of money very quickly. And sometimes you don't have the maturity to really process what it is you're doing and what it is you're chasing. Yeah. And I'm going to editorialize a little bit here, but, you know, I feel like with, with Mark Zuckerberg specifically, you know, that's a, that's a guy who, who the majority of his adult life, if not the entirety of his adult life, has been spent being one of the richest people on earth. Yeah. And it is very difficult to get the perspective necessary to understand what your customers are going through and to understand, you know, how your decisions are impacting the world. And I and I do feel like um you know, again, that's that's not a problem you can address with regulation, but but I I, I do feel like it's you know it, it's a bigger conversation to have around tech, where you can make money so fast 
and it can outpace your ability to really process the impact of your actions. And, and, and I feel like that's something we're going to have to reckon with in the coming decades because that pace is only going to get faster. It's only going to get more disruptive and the good and the bad effects of it are only going to get bigger. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's the thing. It's not even a knock on Zuckerberg. If, if I was fortunate enough to be in his position and smart enough to have done the things that he did, I would wind up in the same disaster probably that he did. I mean, oh. obscene wealth at an early age messes everyone up. It's not like it, it would hurt anyone. Oh, if, if I had been in Zuckerberg's position, the cities would have been burning like 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so hard, you know. I, um, I don't know how, I, I don't know what kind of a systematic, boy, that's such a hard, I don't know what kind of systematic change could possibly ever fix that. Because like you said, it's sort of getting worse and worse. The, the most recent example I think of is Robin Hood. Um, and I, I worry about what it's really promoting in terms of investment philosophy. You know, it seems to be teaching a lot of relatively young or sometimes retirees to day trade and to lever up and trade on margin, doing all kinds of things that really are unlikely to yield positive returns in any sort of reasonable time frame. And we're teaching a whole bunch of people to do this stuff. Meanwhile, Robinhood, the company itself, is worth billions. You know, it's, it's got insane momentum, very, very rich founders and investors now. But is it really doing a good thing for society? I don't know. I'm so in the back catalog of YDHTY, a whole nother thread is on the, the use of debt and the, the, the way dollar dominance in the global economy enables a lot of the things that go on. And what I am amazed by is our economy's ability to figure out new and innovative ways to siphon wealth from those who don't have it. You know, I mean, if you look, it was the dot-com bubble was the first one. Then the housing bubble was the next one. Um, and I, I, I think this, you know, leverage-driven uh, speculation on everything is, is the next one. And um, the, the good news, bad news in all this is that the party ends eventually. You know, there's, yeah. there's the, right now, a, a, I mean, first off, all of these businesses, you know, so Twitter, Facebook, Robinhood are all driven by an easy money policy that required people with large amounts of money to go into riskier and riskier investments. That's right. Seeking returns. The, the second part of this is there eventually is going to be a retraction in monetary policy. And when that happens, a, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these apps, a lot of these innovations are just going to kind of get throttled. And, yeah. uh, and then you're going to have a much, I, I think you're, you're going to have a much different landscape. You know what, Arjun, I'm feeling myself dragging you <laughs> down the monetary policy rabbit hole. And, Anyone? I'm, I'm right there with you. Okay, my, perfect. My, my pet peeve is that the Fed keeps interest rates low artificially too long, and it creates all kinds of asset bubbles and bad, bad investment decisions across every asset class. It annoys me to no end. Uh, so I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. You want to hear it? So I've got... Oh, no. Get this. UK government. <laughs> What's this? Oh, they're calling you he now? Hello. Ah. Hello. Yes, this is Arjun speaking. 
Yep, I don't have any questions. I'm fine on the time frame. Thank you. Bye now. Hey, Dan. <laughs> you don't. Sorry, I was sitting that. here. Oh, no worries. I was sitting here and I was fighting back the urge to yell something out like, Stonehenge is even bigger than I thought it would be. <laughs> I, I've got I've got I've got a great question to cap this one off, which is yes. there's because there's one other uh, topic of time and space we didn't get to at the very beginning, which mm. is you launched this poll before Jeff Bezos launched himself into space. <laughs> Are you doing a poll on that? Because I would <laughs> like to read that one. We did. We did a poll not specific to <laughs> Bezos. Um, uh -huh. Let me. Uh, yeah. Let me see if I can pull it up. It was. Um, is uh, it was only like five or six. Yeah, it was. Is commercial space travel a worthy endeavor? Uh, and then let me just pull up the results actually right now and see what we got. I think it was. Uh, oh, hang on, there's one over. Um, we, we got a fair number of votes on it, I think. Uh, oh dear, it's not. Uh, I can't seem to pull it up. Okay, I'll see if I can. Uh, pull well, it up later on but yeah it was it, uh, there were probably four or five hundred people who voted on it we have a teaser piece of content then for you the listener so go to the factual and and check it out and <laughs> i would just like i would just like to say that what makes that event even more beautiful is the fact that richard branson did it first and there wasn't even a whisper about him going <laughs> into space oh actually i just found it it's uh yeah, there was 393 votes on it, and it was almost a split decision. 48% said, yes, it's a worthy endeavor, and 40% said, no, it was not a worthy endeavor. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm surprised. I, I, I would expect it to be much more tilted in one way or the other myself, and probably against it after yeah. Bezos' joyride. I think, I mean, if you look at it, you know, there's, there's lots of arguments to be made on, uh, you know, there is a lot of innovation, tr sort of trickle down innovation, if you will, when you do these space sort of efforts, then a lot of the innovation that was required to do that sometimes filters into our lives in other ways. So there's good things there. Yeah. You look at the compact disc, which obviously is an outmoded yeah. mode of, mode of, uh, of, of getting music now, uh, but you know, back when that was first created, those were prohibitively expensive and yeah. only the super rich had them. But within a couple of years, that price declined greatly. And that happens with all technology. So, yeah. So I would exactly. say if there are ways to make it cheaper, more efficient, more effective, then, you know, give Bezos a second ride. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Bezos didn't do anything different except for just be the most hated person to be launched into space. I think yeah. if you want to find out if people really like you, launch yourself into orbit. You're going to find out really quick. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he's he's definitely not got a lot of fans. I, I try to separate Bezos, the person, from some of Bezos, the business side. And I think he cares a lot about his customers. He could definitely yeah, do better for his workers, but he cares a lot about his customers. Well, and the other thing is like everybody – who had something to say about Bezos, I can guarantee you they definitely have bought more from Amazon than they have from Virgin <laughs> in the last year. Yep, that's true. That's true. Um, no, it's uh, what an interesting time we live in. What a crazy, crazy time we live in.
look, man, you and I are on the internet right now. I'm watching you on my television. You are sitting in the UK <laughs> in quarantine for a global pandemic. Like, I, I, I think, like, honestly, if, you know, if, if I could travel back in time and talk to myself, I just wouldn't. It would, it would just be too much, you know? I know. We do. And, and of course, the, the very fact that we're having this conversation and living relatively normally is such a tribute to technology in large part, uh, not just carrying on this conversation and recording, but even scientists, the vaccines and all the stuff they've done. Like, technology is such an important way for society to progress. Um, and like everything else, it just needs to have some guidelines and controls and, and incentives to make sure that the people who mean well and who really want good for their technology's use have a good way to develop that and earn a decent living at it not a crazy amount of money and you know that's the part that i don't love is that the the crazy amounts of money come from increasingly bad stuff but i would like for entrepreneurs to get a good amount of money from doing good stuff not crazy amount of money <laughs> well i think and maybe we can cap it off with this little piece of pessimistic optimism <laughs> but if the changes in the global economy and in especially U.S. monetary policy take the course I think they're going to take, there's not going to be as much money in it. And so at that point, you're really going to be doing it because it's what calls you rather yeah. than doing it because there's this just enormous hunk of cheese at the end of that maze. And I think that's right. Like the truth is Bezos would have still did what he did even if there wasn't, you know, if there was one one hundredth of the wealth, he would have done exactly the same thing because he wanted to build that. And he was a really smart and passionate guy. I would still do the fact I'm not getting paid a ton now and I'm still doing it because I love it and I want to do it. And hopefully there's, I do think financial incentives matter, but it doesn't matter as much as people think. I think this is what Steven Pinker found out. You know, it's like, yeah, we, we all want money. We all want to be able to buy stuff and live well, but we don't need as much as we might think we need. And mm -hmm. so I don't, I'm, I'm okay if they take out some of the crazy amounts of money floating around in our monetary system. I'm okay with that. Oh, without a doubt. Without a <laughs> doubt. In some ways, it'd be easier. In many Definitely. ways, it'd be easier. Yeah, we're humans. One of our weaknesses is we compare all the time. And you see all these other people with a lot more money, and then you think, oh, I want that. Why shouldn't I have that? Didn't I work as hard mm. to get that? Our stupid comparison gene is really awful sometimes. Um, oh, Yeah. Yeah. But it's also what drives capitalism. I don't know. Anyways, it's a circular argument. Well, Arjun, per usual, we should have booked more time. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thank you very much for having me, Dan. This is always delightful. So much fun to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did and are not a subscriber yet, this is your invitation to do so. We put out an episode every Thursday at 2 a.m., Eastern Standard Time because that's how I choose to live my life. Also, if you know someone riled up about issues around big tech, be sure to share this episode with them. We need more people like you in the conversation. Lastly, if you have thoughts of your own you'd like to share, I am really active on Facebook. We have a page. You don't have to yell. You can find it there. Or you can drag me out to Twitter by hitting me up at Dan Sally. Whatever floats your boat. Now, a couple interesting things I learned in this conversation with Arjun. First, 
what we view as a problem with disinformation on social media is really a very small number of people who get an outsized voice by algorithms that favor total nonsense. And as Arjun said, somewhere between 1% to 2% of Americans get their news from social media. So it begs the question as to how many people are actually swayed by disinformation as opposed to folks just having their opinions reinforced. Now, second is that the problem doesn't seem to be what is and isn't said on social media because the removal of Donald Trump from Twitter and Facebook still left a lot of conservative voices on there. It's more about the power these companies have and the immense wealth of a small group of celebrity founders that don't always seem to care all that much about the effect their platforms have on the way we speak to each other. And if you've listened to this show before, you know my general feeling is that we'll eventually enter a period where monetary policy gets tighter, which will kind of solve these anxieties by smoothing out some of the great wealth disparities that exist today. Until then, hunker down and stock up on NFTs. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putt. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.